So as you know, tomorrow is Labor Day, and for most of us, it's going to be a holiday. And so I was kind of going out trying to find a, a good Labor Day joke, couldn't really find any. But what I did find was a top 10 list I'm going to share with you. Hopefully one that you'll never need, but the top 10 things to blurt out if your boss catches you asleep. <laughs> so number 10, they told me this might happen at the blood bank. <laughs> number nine, this is just, just that 15-minute just that power nap that they raved about in that time management course you sent me to. Number eight, woo, must lift the top off the whiteout. <laughs> Number seven, I wasn't sleeping. I was actually meditating on the company's mission statement and finding new ways to meet it. Number six, I was just testing the keyboard to see if it was drill resistant. Number five, I was actually doing stress leveling elimination exercise plan, acronym for sleep. Uh, I learned about in that last mandatory seminar you made me attend. <laughs> Number four, this is an exchange for those six hours I spent last night dreaming about work. Number three, someone must have put decaf in the wrong pot. Number two, boy, this cold medicine just will not wear off. And number one, amen, because you were just sleeping instead of <laughs> or praying instead of sleeping. So this morning, I'd like to talk with you about taking Christ into the workplace. In doing so, I'd like to cover, break it down into three points. The first one's going to be seeing your everyday work as service to God. Second one, serving God where you work. Third point will be all of us are called to be ministers. And so to do this, we're going to take a look at Daniel chapters 1 through 6. And for the sake of time and to avoid putting you guys all to sleep, I'm not going to stand up here and just read all six chapters to you. But instead, I'm going to go through and kind of hit each chapter, summarize it briefly, and call out a few key verses as it relates to the overall story. So this will be the highly abridged version, so I encourage you to take a few notes uh, from the sermon today and find some time this week to read it and to get, really dig into those details a little bit more. So just to kind of set the context of where Daniel is, um, King David ruled in, uh, over Israel from 10, approximately 1010 B.C. to about 970 B.C. And Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in 587 B.C. So if you do the math, you find out it's about 383 years after King David's reign um, that Babylonian is falling. And during those 383 years, we see in the Bible the periods where uh, the children of Israel, they would follow God and they would prosper. We'd find periods where they wouldn't follow God and they would, and they would either suffer or they wouldn't prosper. And again, we see as, uh, as God is handing them over to the Babylonians that they're again not following, um, not following God's uh, law. And we can see that in Jeremiah 25, verses 5 through 9, where it says, Turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices. You can stay in the land the Lord has given you, given to you and your ancestors forever and ever. Do not follow other gods and worship them. Do not arouse my anger. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord. And you have aroused my anger and with, your, and with what your hands have made. And you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty s says this, Because you have not listened to my word, I have summoned all the people of the north and my servant, ne King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. I will bring them against you, I will br bring them against this land and its inhabitants. 
and against the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them objects of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. So again, from the scripture, we can see that they, were, they had begun to worship other gods and begin to do other evil practices. So God was going to hand them over to the Babylonians. And so as we look at the, the book of Daniel, we, it opens up with King Nebuchadnezzar um, and the Babylonian army taking siege of Jerusalem. And when it falls, we, we see that they, they raid the temple and they take off a lot of the treasures from Israel. And they take off some of the people too, including Daniel. So in a sense, Daniel loses, loses his job in Jerusalem. He's carried off to Babylon. To Babylon. And now, so he's carried off from, a peop, from people that at least know God and, and have similar beliefs to him, whether they were, all of them are truly following him or not. They're taken to a truly pagan environment in Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar orders his chief, the chief of his court's officials to find some people to work for him. And he gives them some specific criteria, but essentially he says, go out and find the best of the best. And so, you know, Daniel had lost his job in Jerusalem and he had taken off to Babylon. He could have sat back and had a pity party. He could have not really applied himself in, in, as he was taken into Babylon. And he could have even acted crazy so that he wouldn't have gotten selected. But for, something, but for, he, for some reason, he was applying himself and he was standing out as one of the best of the best. So he was selected along with three of his friends, which you probably know better by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So when they were selected, uh, they they were sent to three years of education or orientation, if you will, for their new job. I don't know about you, but when I was hired for Walmart, I went through a three-day grueling orientation. I couldn't imagine going through three years of it. (laughs) But obviously, they applied themselves to this education, to this training, because we can see that three years later, when they were presented to the king in Daniel 1, verses 19 and 20, it says, the king talked to them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, which is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they entered into the king's service. In matters of wisdom and understanding about, about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the other magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. So they were obviously applying themselves during this educational period. They were trying to learn it, and they learned it better, ten times better than anyone else. And so now they have this nice cushy government job. And so they could just sit back and relax and enjoy life. And that'd be the end of the story. But that's not what they did. They continued to apply themselves. They continued to give it their all. One more thing I'll call out before I move on to chapter two is during that three years of education, the king had ordered them to eat food from his table. But we, but we can see from the, the scripture that that food would was against God's law, and it would de- defile them in order to, to actually eat it. And so they very tactfully pushed back and said, well, just give us the, the fruit, the water, and the veggies, and test us in this. Test our God in this for 10 days. And so for those 10 days, they ate nothing but the fruit, the water, and the veggies. And th- at the end of it, they were stacked up against those who had eaten from the king's table. And they were found to be in better shape than those that had eaten from the king's table. So in a sense, their employer that the king had asked them to break God's law, and they tactfully pushed back on him. They said, test us in these things, and God blessed them for that. It would have been far easier for them if they had just said, well, you know, it's only three years. We'll let it slide for these three years, and then we'll go back to what the Lord said. But instead, they stand firm in their faith, and God rewards them for that. So that's chapter one in a nutshell. So chapter two 
In chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. The Bible says that it scares him. So he summons all the wise men and the, the astrologers and, and, the, uh, and the people that, and asks them to interpret it. But he doesn't want them just to tell him what he wants to hear or to make up something that sounds plausible. So he lays down this challenge in Daniel 2, 5. It says, The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what, I, what, the, what my dream was and interpret it, I will cut you into pieces and turn your houses into a pile of rubble. So it wasn't enough just to interpret it. He wants them to tell him what his dream was and then interpret it. And all the wise men of the court said, no one can do this. And no king, no king has ever asked anyone to do this before. So the king issues an, an order, a, a decree, that all the wise men of Israel should be put to death. So not a bright chapter in, in Daniel's employment record. Imagine having to put on your resume that the king ordered the, your death at one point. And when we, when, but when they come to Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 14, we see that he, it says that he used wisdom and tact to convince them to give him more time to interpret the dream. And Daniel uses this time to pray. And God reveals to Daniel the, the dream as well as the interpretation. So Daniel's able to go to the king and interpret it for him. And not only is Daniel's life spared, but the lives of all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel gets a promotion out of it, too, that we can see in Daniel chapter 2, verse 40, 48 and 49. It says, Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of his wise men. Moreover, Daniel requested the king appoint Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal courts. So before we leave chapter 2, is one more thing I want to call out. And that's, and that's throughout the entire book of Daniel, really. But really, in this chapter, we can see that Daniel is giving God praise uh, for, for everything that he's doing. And through giving God praise, it's allowing the king to, to, to really recognize that God is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we can see that in Daniel 2, verse 47, where it says, The king said to, to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery to me. So chapter 3. In chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar builds an idol, and the idol is complete, and he's ready to dedicate it. So the Bible says that he calls his, his satraps, his prefects, governors, advisors, tre uh, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and other provincial officials, which would in have included Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to that dedication. And they get to the dedication, and the king orders them all to bow down and to worship the idol that he had, uh, had built or be thrown into the fiery furnace. So again, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's boss ordering them to break the law of the Lord. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship it. And some people turn them into the king, and the king gives them one last chance to worship it or be thrown into the furnace. And we can see their response in Daniel 3, verses 17 and 18, where it says, if, if we were thrown into the blazing furnace, the God that we serve is able to deliver us from it. He is able to deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not worship your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up for us. 
As you can imagine, this upset the king greatly. And so he had the fire stoked seven times hotter than normal, had him bound and he had him thrown into the fire. After a while, the king looks in the fire and he says, didn't we throw three men in? Because I see four in there. And one of them looks like the son of God. And so the king calls to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to come out of the fire. And we can see how the fire had affected them in Daniel 3, verse 27. And so the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor had it singed a hair on their head. Their robes were not scorched, and there, there was no smell of fire on them. Isn't that kind of cool? They came out of the fire, and they don't even smell like smoke. And again, through their faithfulness, King Nebuchadnezzar again recognizes God, the, the true God. And we can see that in Daniel 3, verses 28 through 29, where it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent an angel to rescue his servants. They trusted him and defied their king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than to serve or worship any God except their own. Therefore, I decree that that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses turned into a pile of rubble. For there is no other God that can save in this way. So that concludes chapter 3. Moving into chapter 4, just going to kind of gloss over it a little bit, but just super quick. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. Daniel interprets it. The dream comes true, and King Nebuchadnezzar again recognizes God as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. In chapter 5, there's a new king, King Belteshazzar. He's the son of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so King Nebuchadnezzar is, is, has passed away, and so King Belteshazzar is now the king. And he's throwing a banquet. And he decides to go and take some of the treasure that they had taken from, from Israel and use that as part of the party. And they defile it in God's eyes. And so much to everybody's surprise, a hand appears, just a hand, and it starts writing on the wall, writing in the plaster on the wall. No one, in the, in the, no one at the party is able to interpret it. The king calls for his, his wise men and his astrologers, and they aren't able to, to interpret it either. And so the king, get, the Bible says the king is terrified, even pale in the face. And the queen hears of this, and she's like, she remembers of a person that used to help King Nebuchadnezzar. She remembers Daniel, and so they call on Daniel to come and interpret it. And so Daniel comes, and he's able to interpret it for the king. And the interpretation is calling out for the, for the end of King Belteshazzar because of what he has done. And even though Daniel gives him bad news, the king honors the agreement and rewards Daniel. We can see that in Daniel chapter 5, verse 29, where it says, Then King Belteshazzar commands, or then at King Belteshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A golden chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And then the chapter closes out with King Belteshazzar being slain that very night. So before we move on, take a minute and think about it this way. What if you're at work and something miraculous happens and you're called on to interpret it? And when you come to interpret it, you realize that it's saying that your boss, your king, is going to die tomorrow. Would you have the faith to tell him, hey, you're going to die tomorrow, basically? Or would you make something up knowing that you'd have a new king the next day? I mean, think about it. Because Daniel could have very easily been put to death, or at the very least been, been lost his job for it. But he has the faith, and God rewards him for that. Moving on to chapter 6, the last chapter we'll take a look at this morning. It opens with a new king, King Darius. 
And it opens with them appointing rulers over the kingdom. Let's look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. It says, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so, so that the king would not suffer loss. Now, now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional quality that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So again, we can see that Daniel is not just sitting back enjoying life in this high, in this high position, but he's continuing to imply himself, continuing to stand out with his exceptional qualities. And so he's going to get promoted for it again. And much as it can happen today in the workplace when somebody gets promoted in our teams, you know, people can get jealous and be like, why'd he get promoted over me? And so these people that got jealous, they, they went to the king and King Darius, and they kind of stroked his ego a little bit and said, hey, wouldn't it be nice if people could only pray to you for the next 30 days? Pray to no other God, no other person, but pray to only you the next 30 days. And King Darius says, that's a pretty good idea. So he signs the decree, that decree. And Daniel's response to that decree is, is great. You can see it in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. It says, now when Daniel learned of this decree was published, he went home to his upstairs room where the window was open towards Jerusalem. And three times a day he got on his knees and he prayed and gave thanks to God just as he had done before. Isn't that kind of neat? He learns that it's published, and his response is, hey, I'm going to go home and pray. I mean, think about it. If your boss came to you and said, hey, no more prayer in the workplace, would your first thought be, hey, let's go home and, or let's go and pray? Or would it be something else? Would it be maybe trying to work around your work schedule? Well, I'll pray before and after work, but not at work. To, or would you or try to squeeze it in sometime when you're not on the clock? So Daniel broke the decree, and he prayed. And those people that were jealous caught him doing it, and not very surprisingly, turned him into the king. And King Darius was forced to uphold the, the decree and throw him into the lion's den. And we can see that what happened the next morning in Daniel chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, where it says, at the, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came to the den, he called on Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel! Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you've served continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answers back that he is that he's still alive and that God has saved him. He walks out without a scratch. Before we go on, think about what the king said. He said, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to save you? Daniel had obviously been living out his faith and most likely speaking out enough about his faith that his boss knew that he served a living God, that his boss knew that he served him continually. Think about your own testimony. Think about your own job. Do you live out your faith enough in the workplace that your bosses, that your coworkers can say those things about you? So th through Daniel's continued faith in us, King Darius recognizes God, uh, the true God. And we can see that in Daniel chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, it's where it says, I issue a decree that in every part of the kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will not end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel. 
from the power of the lions. And chapter 6 closes out saying that Daniel continued to prosper under King Darius. So those are the, that's the basic synopsis of the first six chapters of Daniel. And I'd like to do with the time that we have left is to take what we've read about or heard about in Daniel chapters 1 through 6 and apply them to our three points this morning. Seeing how Seeing how we can, how we should, uh, how your everyday work should be looked at as service to God, serving God in the workplace, and that all of us are called to be ministers. So, see, so we'll start with the first one: seeing your everyday work as service to God. In the same way that Daniel didn't have a pity party when he got drug away from Jerusalem into Babylon, in the same way that he applied himself to those three years of training, in the same way he served faithfully uh, as a government in his government job with working with the king. We should do the same. Time and time again, uh, time and time again, his outstanding qualities are recognized and he gets promoted. Daniel chooses to serve and, and give exceptional service. And he, he does it not only, he does it not for his own position, he does it not for the money, but to, for the, so that God can truly get the glory. And we should approach our, God, our, our jobs, our work, with the same sense of excellence. We should give we should go to work and give 100% every day. And you might say, well, you don't know my job. You don't know my boss. You don't know the type of people I work around. And you're probably right. But consider the story of Daniel. He worked for a pagan king who didn't believe in God. And when he was the second, the highest thir- second and third highest person in the kingdom, we know that he had at one point up to 120 people reporting to him, that, and most of which probably did not believe in God. But he remained faithful, and he continued to give it his all. And, and not only did he prosper, but more importantly, the people that he was working for recognized God as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Let's take a look at another verse that says that we should give our all at work. It's Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. It's a fairly familiar scripture to most of us, I'm sure. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you do not, since you know that you will not, you will, re- try that again. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as your reward, it is the Lord that you are serving. So, we, so this is saying that we should give our all. We should work as if we're working for the Lord. I mean, think about it this way. If you're working directly for God, think about your day-to-day work. Think about how much you give in your day-to-day work, would he be happy with how you're working as your employer? And one thing to point out is the second part of that verse where it says, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord, we can see that Daniel did receive um, some benefit from working hard. But I think this verse is also saying that even if we don't see that benefit, even if we don't get promoted through our hard work, we should rest assured that our inheritance is from the Lord. So you might say, what's the big deal? Why is this such a big princi- Why is this such an important principle? Well, consider this. There's obviously the easy answer. The Bible says that we should do it, so it's probably important. We should probably do it. But perhaps a less obvious reason is that it can affect our witness. You might say that well, you, you work for a, a non a non Christian. You might say you work for a non Christian. You might work for non Christians in a secular company. Is modeling Christian characteristics really going to make that big of a difference? Well, it, 
You see, one of the easiest ways to discredit Christ in the workplace is for Christians to do inferior work. Doing quality work may not be the key reason that somebody comes to know the Lord, but doing inferior work will almost very quickly make it impossible for you to share Christ in a positive light. So go the extra mile when necessary. Make an effort to serve God and serve those around you and do so with excellence. So the first point, see your everyday work as service to God. Second point, serve God where you work. In January 1995, according to an article by Gary Thomas, J. Robert Ashcroft had fewer than 48 hours to live, but he was holding on to life hoping to see his son, John Ashcroft, sworn into the United States Senate the following day. As the, as the family and friends gathered in Washington with a small reception, J. Robert Ashcroft asked his son to play the piano and for the group to sing, We Are Standing on Holy Ground. After they sang, the frail old man called his son over and shared these words. John, I want you to know that even in Washington, that even Washington can be holy ground. Wherever you can hear the voice of God, that ground is sanctified. It is, the place where God can call, it is the place where God can call you to the highest and the best. Wherever you are in your vocation, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, that place is a holy place of service to him. In the same way, regardless of where you are, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, wherever that place is, that place is holy ground, and holy service to God. We walk into our workplaces with Jesus in our heart. That is the place, that place is a holy place of service to God. In the same way, throughout the book of Daniel, we see references to Daniel's service to God and his faithfulness in the workplace. In chapter 1, we can see that he spent the three years, during the three years of education, that he modeled faithfulness by refusing to eat the fruit and the vegetables or to only eat fruit and vegetables, not eat the things that would defile him. In chapter 2, when Dan- Daniel interprets for King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he gives God all the glory and is faithful. In chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into a fire furnace for being faithful and not worshiping the idol. And it goes on and on. And in chapter 6, there's an edict that goes out that anyone who prays to any, any god other or, or human other than the king for the next 30 days will be thrown into lion's den. But Daniel's faithful in his response. His response is to go home and to pray. He's thrown into the lion's den, but God delivers him. Now, hopefully your bosses aren't going to be thrown into any lion's den. But what if they give you a tough assignment? What if they give you an impossible assignment? Have you lived out your faith enough that when they, they come back to you a week or two later, that they say, has the God that you serve continually been able to help you, help you complete this task? Putting another way, have you lived your life with a high enough concentration of God, with God's potency in it, that is undeniable to the people around you that you serve, that you're a Christian? You might be tempted to say, well, Daniel's an extraordinary person. I'm just an ordinary person. But my response to that would be great because God delights in taking ordinary people and infusing them with extraordinary power. Imagine being an ordinary person, going into an ordinary, per, an ordinary workplace with an extraordinary God. Imagine the things that he can do. Just be careful to give him all the praise and the glory for what he does. So the first point, see your everyday work as service to God. Second point, serve God where you work. And the third point is, the first third point I'd like you to see is that we're all called to be ministers. 
no matter where, where you are in life, where you work, what your title is, if you're a Christian, you're called to be a minister. And we can see that in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20, where it says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you even to the end of the age. Notice it doesn't say, therefore, pastors go and make disciples of all nations. Therefore, missionaries go and make disciples of all nations. It's therefore, everybody go and make disciples of all nations. Now, God might call you to a mission field. He might call you to a pastorate. But, and if he does, great, you should respond to that. But this command doesn't apply any more or any less if that were to happen. Your ministry is now, wherever you are, whatever your sphere of influence. You might say, well, I'm just a victim of circumstance. I'm just in this job temporarily. This is the job over here that I really want, but it wasn't available. And, but when I get over there, that, that's, that's when I'll start sharing Christ with my coworkers. But remember that Daniel was a victim of circumstances too. He wasn't in Babylon because he wanted a job, so he fixed up his resume and put a cover letter with it and sent it to the king. He was in Babylon, yes, because the soldiers, the Babylonian soldiers took him there, but for another reason as well that we can see in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, where it says, Seek peace and prosperity of the city to which I carry you into exile. Pray to the Lord, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Did you catch it? Let's read it again. Seek the peace and prosperity to the city to which I, the Lord God, carry you into exile. They, he, he, they, Daniel was in exile. He was in Babylon because that's where God wanted him to be. Here, Daniel is in a pagan place, surrounded by pagan people because the Bible says that's exactly where God wanted him to be. And if you're in a secular workplace, working with non-Christians, that's because that's exactly where God wants you to be. The, the person that you talk with every day, the, person that you, the voice you hear over the cubicle wall, the person that shared their hopes and their dreams with you, the person that's told you about that new car they bought or their kids and their family. God's put you there to, to be, a, to yes, to, to model Christ to them, but also to share Christ with them. So just a few practical steps to share Christ with them. One, yes, model Christ in the workplace. Be the person of upstanding character. Be the person that strives for excellence every day. Be the person that gives glory to God for your successes. Number two, Start praying for them. Call their name out to God. Ask God to prepare their hearts to hear. Ask God to open up opportunities for you to be able to share. Number three, build rapport with the people. Get, truly get to know them. Maybe take them, out to a, a, take them out to lunch. Find out about them. Find out about their family. Truly earn the right to share Christ with them. And last point, once you build relationship with them, take a chance. Share Christ with them. Or invite them to an event like we have coming up on the 18th so that they might hear the gospel. If there are people in your lives that you've been modeling for, that you've been praying for, that you've been building relationships for, consider taking some of the invite cards, some of the flyers in the back, and handing them out. You might be surprised at what the Lord can do with that simple act. If you haven't been, start modeling for them. Start praying for them. Start building relationships with people so that you can share the gospel with them. So as we dismiss here in a little bit today, I want you to have a great day off tomorrow, but as you return to work on Tuesday, remember to take God with you into the workplace. Into workplace. 
Take him by seeing your everyday work as service to God. Take him by serving God where you work. Take him by being a minister in the workplace. Because I guarantee you there's someone there that needs to hear the message. And remember, there might be fiery furnaces and lion's dens along the way. But as with Daniel, God will see you through. So this morning, before we dismiss, uh, we're going to be taking communion, um, also known as the Lord's Supper. Um, Jesus modeled this in, uh, during the Passover meal in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 28. Many Bibles label it as, as the Last Supper. But in a lot of ways, it's the first supper because it's the first of many suppers that the Christians have celebrated over the years, over the past 2,000 years, and that we're still celebrating today as believers. So before we hand, start handing out the communion, I'd like to hit two points briefly. And that's why do we take communion and what should we do prior to taking communion? So the first, why do we take communion? It's not just a, a ritual that Christians do. The Lord's Supper really commemorates uh, what, God act, what Jesus actually did for our forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation with the Father. And we can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26, where it says, For I receive from the Lord what I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and having given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For, for wherever, so, so whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we take the bread in remembrance of the body that was broken for our sins. We take the cup to remember the blood that was spilled to cover those sins and to remember the new covenant with God. And we, we take the bread and the cup to proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until his return. Second point, why, what should we do prior to taking communion? One of the purposes of communion is to, to call us to a, a moment of accountability before God. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 29, where it says, So whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the, the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the, eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So Paul is calling them to examine themselves, to look and see if there's anything in their lives that maybe they need to get straight with God before they take the communion. For he says that there's no benefit in the bread or the cup to Christians who choose to live disobedient, disobedient lives and still take communion. So this morning as the worship team comes back and we get ready to hand out the, um, the, the elements I'd like to ask you to take time to examine yourselves as you're waiting to be served or waiting for everybody to be served. Take time to examine yourself and see if there's anything that you need to get straight before, um, before God. Uh, if you're a guest today, uh, we, we do serve open, open communion, which just means that if, if you, um, the only requirement is that you be a Christian. You don't have to be a member of this church or a partner of this church. So as I begin to play, 
just take time to examine yourself as begin begin to serve. And once everybody's served, we'll come back and take it together. So this morning, if everybody would stand. Take the bread and take a second and just remember the body that was broken for our sins. Then we'll pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for this time, Lord, to reflect on all that Christ did on Calvary. Thank you, Lord, for this bread, Lord, that symbolizes your broken body, Lord, and the, the sins that was broken for our sins, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice. Help us, Lord, to reflect on it this week and help it to draw us closer to you.
Let me pray. Amen. Take the bread. Now take the cup and remember the blood that was spilled for our forgiveness of sins. Dear Jesus, Lord, as we take this cup, Lord, and we remember the new covenant in your blood, Lord, we remember the blood, Lord, that was spilled for our forgiveness of sins. Lord, as we, as we took the bread, Lord, we're about to take the cup, Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to proclaim your name to those that need to hear. Lord, may we give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory forever. Amen. Take the cup. Amen. Pastor Ken, I want to close this out with song. Let's worship.
a sacrifice. What a sacrifice to save my life. Yes, the blood, it is my victory. Lord, we're thankful that the blood is our victory. We remember you this morning as our Savior, our King of kings, our Lord of lords. And we go forward and be just like you in our workplace, in our world. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here in the house and uh, just hope that God has touched your heart and that you'll go forward with him on your mind and on your lips. God bless you. Have a great day.